1: Bloomberg Television and Radio, we get to join Tom Keene, who is now going to have a discussion, uh, an exclusive interview with World Bank President David Malpass following the publication of the latest report showing the greatest rebound in 80 years. That said, very much a tale of two worlds where you've got the developed world very much uh, in front and center while developing nations struggle behind. David Malpass, World Bank President, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, can we just start with the divergence that we see within different economies what is going to be the legacy from the pandemic as we look at this incredible growth uh that, that you uh, tra- that you track in this report
2: Hi, hi, Lisa. Thanks. Uh, well, the legacy is uh, it was a really deep recession. Uh, there was a lot of stimulus and there was a lot of monetary stimulus applied by the advanced economies and also the vaccines. That, becomes the, that turned out to be a key variable in the recovery rates. So those countries that had this giant fiscal and monetary stimulus and vaccines recovered more quickly, uh, but that still leaves the hard work ahead of getting good investment quality into the future. Um, the, the negative side of it is that the developed, developing countries uh, had an even deeper recession and a slower recovery. So the, they're left further behind in terms of per capita GDP.
1: David, when investors come on any of the shows on Bloomberg Television, they talk, tell Bloomberg Radio, they talk about investing in the developing world, about EM bonds and stocks, and how that's an opportunity. Are you seeing enough money flood into the developing world to forestall some sort of financial crisis that many people were worried about in the beginning of the pandemic?
2: there have been some bright elements one is that remittances came back uh rather quickly and that that supports so that's the 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 people from the developing country working outside their borders sending money back home and that's good for their small businesses their families their uh their survival uh, and so that's that's helped from the standpoint of uh of bond investors there's a strong reach for yield but it tends to be constant concentrated in the in the less risky areas. So it's very hard to get that capital to go into fragile situations and into the poorest uh, countries on net. It's a concern because they're they're taking uh, sizable profit flows and uh, in high interest rates out of the developing world. So I'm I I think the debt overhang is in a way a bigger challenge or as big a challenge as this new flow. The World Bank itself, we put a very big positive net flow into the poorest countries thanks to donors and our own leveraging capabilities. We borrow $100 billion a year in global capital markets, and so that that can be devoted, but it's simply not enough for these uh, billions of people in the developing world.
0: Uh, David Melpass, Tom Keene, New York, and congratulations to you on this report. The polarity that you see in our world economies is something that needs leadership. What is the leadership you need from President Biden in the United States?
2: Uh-huh. Uh- A a key aspect of the recovery is the distribution of vaccines, actual shots in arms for uh, hundreds of millions of people, in fact, billions of people in the developing world. So a a key step is for the U.S. to uh, decide and release uh, the excess vaccines that it's able to produce. We need to recognize it's just a, a wonder for the world that they were invented and that the manufacturing, which is actually very difficult to do, uh, is being done in quantity. So week by week, the U.S. production is going up by leaps and bounds. So unleashing that or releasing that to the world uh, is really important. It needs to go to countries that have distribution programs, the actual ability to uh, to, to deploy the vaccine quickly because otherwise it sits in warehouses yeah. and that that's not where we want. And
0: I saw some state, I'm sorry folks, my brain freezes here, but I saw, no pun intended, but they have the non-freezable Johnson & Johnson vaccine that's going to lose its efficacy here because it's sitting in a warehouse. What does the World Bank do to move forward the distribution
2: capabilities of the philanthropy of the developed world. The G7 over the weekend discussed uh, this and in the communique, the World Bank is asked to use its uh, convening power and also its organizational power to try to try to help with this. I've called many times for more transparency in the actual contracts. So what we're what we've done is set up a website of our own programs. We'll have 50 programs by the end of June that are standing ready uh, with all the funding and with the people. Identified that will give shots. If only the world will will uh, send put shot put uh, vaccines into their ports uh or into their airports uh and so getting that connection having the 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 US identify countries that they're willing to send vaccines to and then the technique there's Covax which is the international organization that also can disclose uh wh- wh- when it will be receiving doses and where it will send doses and try and it's very important that it use uh, uh that it send doses to countries that want that type of dose. One yeah. of the problems has been the doses get sent to countries that don't don't want a particular or that can't use a particular type of uh, vaccine. So we ne- there needs to be a matching effort. We've been trying and trying and trying uh, to do that, and we're disclosing all of our programs.
1: David, a lot of focus has been on whether the US is doing enough, and your comments seem to suggest uh, not yet, although it is building. Has China, however, done enough?
2: Uh, china' is producing vaccines and they're, they're, they're one of their vaccines recently uh it was uh approved by who and so they'll they they'll be distributing that into countries and uh so i i think you know it's it's welcome uh that that uh countries are producing more vaccines. And now the challenge is to match it. And there's a big difference in the efficacy of the various vaccines, but my impression is, uh, any vaccine is uh, for, you know, the, the, the vaccines that have been approved for safety uh, are beneficial for, for countries and especially for the, for the vulnerable in those countries. So matching that up is the goal right now for this week, next week, and the following week to try to get huge amounts of doses to countries that are ready to deliver them.
1: Looking forward, David, past the pandemic, there is a question of what's necessary to restore the small business community in the developing world, which accounts for the vast majority of jobs and has absolutely been decimated by the pandemic. What are you looking for to try to re-ignite uh, the entire emerging markets uh, complex post-pandemic once we have vaccines in arms?
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, which is how do you how do you allow a business to fail if it's going to fail, and then to restart with employees with skills and with some capital? Uh, a lot of that ends up being sweat equity, meaning families uh, say, "I know a bit," say to themselves, "I know a business idea. I'm going to take a risk and go forward." So the the one of the big things countries can do is create an environment where the, where people. With within the country feel that if they create a business, they can grow it, uh, add add employees. And we're trying to do that through all of our various uh, arms of the World Bank.
0: Uh, Mr. Malpass, I was talking to Eric Martin of Bloomberg on the World Bank efforts. You mentioned the $64,000 uh, question. Maybe it's a 409,000 yuan question where does china fit into this what aid what what progress what effort do you need from china to assist the world bank and the developed nations in having a better emerging market
2: there are many things China can do uh, to help. It's the world's second biggest economy, so uh, importing more and having having a more re- receptivity to foreign-produced goods w- is would would be very good. China is a big funder of uh, development through their lending programs. We've encouraged those to be as transparent, uh, more much more transparent than they have been since 2014. China has had a tendency uh, to put in uh, non-disclosure clauses in their contracts their lending contracts which is, has is is not an approach that's favored and is supportive of uh, of development so changing that uh, and changing the the tendency that uh they th- that they've been engaged in as well as some private sector creditors toward uh, collateralization of their debts abroad that should be reduced i think of it as an interface between china their their system is different than rest of the world and there's an interface across a range of activities including commerce but also in 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 navy engagements even in the arctic uh, and so the the china and the world need to find a way to to uh, live together and make progress together uh in a, in a way that's constructive for everybody i think transparency of debt contracts would be a big step forward for china we welcome their uh their membership and shareholding in the world bank they're the third biggest shareholder in the world bank and we're engaged in China in uh, with our programs in global public goods marine plastics in particular China's looking for ways and we're helping them to try to reduce the plastic that goes into rivers and then into oceans so and also their 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 uh, coal burning uh, is is uh, projected to rise dramatically and that's a big challenge for them to find alternatives David
1: World Bank president, thank you so much for taking the time. And Tom Keene, of course, thank you for, for uh, joining us.
0: Let's try to get back on track with the American economy, and we do this with Sarah House, Wells Fargo Corporate and Investment Bank Senior Economist as well. Sarah, I I think we're covering this digital story right now to a fare thee well. Let us get an update on the state of GDP in America. Have you readjusted Q3 and Q4 guesstimates?
3: So when you look at the overall economic landscape here in the U.S., I think we've seen the supply issues become more acute in recent months. But these problems today, these issues around getting parts and materials, the depleted inventories, that slow return of of labor, that really draws out the boom in growth that we're seeing. And and we think that even as you see growth moderate through the second half of the year, that we're still looking at a, a boom economy as those inventories are rebuilt as those workers return and and Mm -hmm. support a solid pace of of labor income over the second half of the year.
0: It's not your territory, but it's in chapter 23 of, I don't know, Abel Bernanke and the rest of the textbooks we all studied, the yield has worked lower. Why are we having a boom economy with bonds bid?
4: Well, I
3: think it comes down to what the the Fed has been saying and their very patient stance when it comes to, to monetary policy. So even as we've seen some flare up of inflation, they're still very much focused on that transitory aspect. Um, take a drink, Tom. And when we look at the <laughs> the outlook for inflation that we are seeing, some, you know, we, we do think that it'll fade to some extent. I think there's still a lot of questions over, OK, it might be transitory but how high and and for how long. But I think right now the, the drivers are pretty well understood. They are largely coming from these supply bottlenecks that will eventually abate, as well as some service sectors very much tied to the reopening. And so I think that understanding has has kept uh has kept yields in
1: check. Sarah, thank you for keeping Tom in check with the transitory drinking game. You know, we have to talk a little bit about the latest news, the idea that there are all of these outages in essential websites. We don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know what's behind this. But it raises a question about the fragility of where we are in markets, how priced to perfection, what kind of disruptions could create an economic dent that is not currently priced in. Based on your intersection of economics and markets, what's your sense on on that, on how priced to perfection we are with the market uh, screaming ahead.
3: Well, I think what we've seen is is that the growth expectations are are very much priced in. Um, again, I think there is some fairly general understanding that the inflationary pressures that we're seeing will will abate. But I think we are in a, a pretty unique period of of monetary policy. So the Fed the Fed's policy stance and and their new framework is largely untested. And so I think with that, as you see various disruptions, various risks come, um, you could see some some increase in, in volatility. But I think the,
1: the, fundal, the fundamental backdrop uh, remains still very constructive for the U.S. Although, Sarah, this does raise a question. If there is some sort of exogenous shock at this point, what ammunition does the Fed still have to actually give a boost to the economy, given all of the stimulus they've already pumped in?
3: Right. So I think where where the Fed is, it's still pretty limited in in what else they could do if if we did have a negative growth shock. So I think they would rely more on their communication tools. So more recently, we've seen them inch towards this discussion of of potentially tapering or at least talking about talking about tapering. And so they could um, reverse course on on that again. Um, While we've obviously seen uh, extensive amounts of of asset purchases, you know, plausibly they, they could could increase those even even further. But I, I think your your basic point is, is well taken that they are pretty limited in, in what else they can they can do at this point.
5: How important is debt to GDP, Sarah? If I look back to the year of my creation in 1973, we were only looking at debt to GDP, Uh, of course that ramped up after the great financial crisis from 60 to 100, but now we're looking at 130 and heading higher, does that matter?
3: I think what's more important is the debt service relative to um, not necessarily to, to GDP, but what's happening in terms of whether it's household income, corporate income, gover- government revenue, and, and um, to that extent GDP growth. Um, but when we we look at the outright stocks of debt, that's not as uh, um, as big of a focal point anymore, just given how low interest rates have have trended in, in recent decades. It really comes down to that debt service, which remains. Exceptionally low right now, um, but there, of course, the risk is that if we do see interest rates rise, particularly if they rise faster than than what's expected right now, that could create uh, an issue in, in the short term where that that debt service rises substantially and leads to a pullback in whether it's corporate investment, household spending, etc. But right now, we are are starting from a, a very solid place in terms of I'm just wondering across sectors.
5: I'm just wondering what happens as we look at $6 trillion of fiscal stimulus, $12 trillion of extraordinary Fed activity. I mean, how much longer can we, if, if, if tra- transitory inflation is the only unintended consequence, why don't we just keep taking from this magic money tree forever?
3: Well, I, I still don't think we we fully know how this story ends, um, but I think in in the meantime, when we're looking at that. Um, at that debt service, I think this does allow us to uh, to um, at least experiment a, a little bit longer here where, um, and to the extent of, well, what does this actually do, do to growth? So um, are we putting this towards uh, towards things that will actually improve capacity, improve productivity, and raise the, the profile of GDP over time versus is it just mere, merely transfers that, that doesn't? I think right now um, we are seeing that this supports stoked demand. And I think you are seeing some um, that pass through to some extent to, to stronger capital spending, which could have right. some beneficial effects to, to, to growth uh, longer term.
0: Sarah House, thank you so much. I have to leave it there with what's going on in the digital space. She's with Wells Fargo. A guest Hermetically sealed in studio with us, we welcome David Bianco of it's DWS. Wonderful to have you as a guinea pig. You know, check your insurance uh, <laughs> David, <Yeah. laughs> David,
6: and liability waiver. Yeah,
0: I, I, I want to talk in your very considered note of how we measure optimism forward. You're optimistic, but we got to measure it out into Q3, don't we? Right. Right.
6: Well, there's a lot of ways to, to measure optimism. One of the more direct ways is simply to look at the valuations. However, when we assess valuations, we have to keep in mind that we're in a very different interest rate environment than history. So when we try to estimate, normalized earnings, and then capitalize those earnings at a fair return, uh, you, that alone, the low interest rates justify high PEs. And with a, uh, still at an above 20 P.E., I don't think the equity markets are exuberant, but they're definitely optimistic about not just sustained recovery, but a long-lasting expansion. And so are we. we are just trying to stay focused on the risks of inflation, yeah. possibly higher real rates, that might weigh on the PEs of the market.
0: You were a student of this at Wharton, and you go to the real issue is we have to gauge the shock that we know is coming. So we've got to fear about what's coming down the road, the Fed comes in and right. and all that, the end of fiscal largesse, etc. You don't fear that, do you?
6: But we are concerned about that. And we have been trying to move the conversation from the immediate inflation risk which we think are more cyclical in nature, commodities, supply chains, the reopening, and we believe those inflation risks will pass, that they are transitory. However, there is a significant risk of more sustained inflation from fiscal largesse and this expansive fiscal and monetary policy. That's what we're watching, and we're looking for signals on that um, out of D.C. this summer. And what I'd like to say is that when it comes to fiscal disciplinarianism or disciplinarium mm-hmm. from the markets, if the bond market is dad, the currency market is mom. And the bond market hasn't shouted yet, but we're watching the dollar to see if the dollar can, you know, it, it's been tested. We think if it slips further, it will cause rates to climb. The problem
0: is mom's at the Gucci store. That's what's going on here for real. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio. David Bianco of DWS with us in the hermetically sealed studio. I've been pickled, so he's safe. Lisa, (laughs) you're still unsafe in a separate room.
1: I'm still hermetically sealed over here. I love the idea of mom being currencies and dad being the bond market. David, there's a question about diversification in a world where you've got such polarized risks. How do you diversify? In this new world,
6: yeah, we—that's the best concept of them all. When you can always fall back on diversification, and when there's uncertainty, we and investors do that. So we are diversified across asset classes. We are diversified across equity regions, and we are trying to be diversified in our styles and segments, and having our portfolio managers pick stocks. But we do have our preferences, and we are modestly overweight equities mostly because we're concerned about the uh, longer-term inflation and likely higher real interest rate risks to the bond market. Um, So we're slightly overweight equities, but our preference is foreign equities, Asia in particular. And uh, when we're shopping in the United States, we're aware of uh, certain things doing well cyclically, semiconductors, banks, but... It's not the 1970s. We think the real inflation risk is more monetary and fiscal in nature. Mm. And we rather move from things like energy, industrials, materials to, if you haven't already, banks. And what we consider to be better inflation protection plays should inflation become more broad-based. We think banks are actually a more effective inflation protection play. And you'll find value there.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And we've already seen a a pretty good run up uh, in in a lot of those bank stocks. I am curious, you mentioned Asia there, David. Uh, What about Europe? I mean, they've kind of gone toe to toe here uh, with U.S. equities, kind of held their own. And of course, you got uh, a big rate decision coming up out of the ECB where you might get a little bit more guidance and a little bit more divergence uh, out of the bank over there in Europe versus the one here in the U.S.
6: So, we are overweight foreign equities and we're equally overweight uh, Europe and, and Asia at this moment. But Europe is more of a reopening play, and the European economy should continue to improve and accelerate over the course of 2020 into 2022. Um, and we still like Europe, but uh, we think what's likely to have legs for the next several years is Asia. And for the next several years, still the growth stocks of the United States, I would say, not just tech and communications and Internet retailing, but also healthcare. Let's not forget about the innovation of biotech mm-hmm. and uh, upon economic strength that's long lasting. Uh, yeah. Tech is also a good play, and so are financials.
5: Is there anything that worries you here about the economic recovery, either here in the U.S. or globally? Any potential speed bumps uh, that you're keeping an eye on?
6: I'm worried about uh Politicians and policy setters trying to be helpful and doing too much. We're going to look to see if these stimulus packages, infrastructure, uh, human social infrastructure packages that are likely to come, and uh, we want to see if they're right-sized, if they're well-targeted, if they're mm-hmm. likely to produce good return on investment. These are the things we're looking at, because if they're not uh, good uses of, of the, the country's savings, it will lead to higher inflation and higher interest rates, and that is a threat to the valuations of financial assets.
0: Uh, David Bianco, it's, it's just wonderful to have you in studio with us, and it really harkens back to it is 2021 and we go back to the previous pandemic of just after World War One. Do you believe in the Roaring Twenties? Do you believe in the idea that the idea, the, the excitement we have mm-hmm. of you coming into our building somehow getting through security? I have no idea yeah, it was, how that it happened. Was never. But, and, <laughs> you know, you took the COVID test and all that, yeah, but and, does this action of you to be our first guest in studio in 13, 14 months, is it about the illusion to the Roaring Twenties?
6: I'm constructive on the economy, U.S. and worldwide. I think we're likely to have a good expansion. I don't know if it lasts 10 years or not, but I think we have a real recovery in process. I don't think the Roaring Twenties are the right an- analogy. First, what is then? Uh, probably uh, something more like, uh, hopefully, hopefully, the hopefully twenties, uh, <laughs> the, the hopefully <laughs> the nineties <90s>, uh, <laughs> of of productivity and and benign inflation and interest rates and uh, and good incentives. But look, the twenties. First off, I would point out the early twenties, 1920s was not a good economy. It was deflationary. It was a lot of trying to put things back in, in, in together. Early
0: depression in England as well. well
6: exactly. 1921 this. was a nasty recession. So people forget that the 20s weren't good until the late 1920s. Yeah. But more I'll importantly, see. that was an economy that uh, uh, was, was it, it, it did benefit from strong global trade after the war, and it did benefit from strong physical um Capital expenditures, investment spending, railroads, things like that. However, (laughs) this economy is digital in nature. This economy is focused on healthcare. These are the things that uh, an affluent society wants and needs. And I think it's important that we stay focused Mm -hmm. on who the innovators are in that sense.
1: Well, talking about that, David. I mean, we survived the Fastly outage of uh, on what is today, June 8th, 2021. There is a question of how you gird against possible disruption going forward, whether it's the Colonial Pipeline whether it's idiosyncratic, whether it has longer legs, how much are you accounting for cyber risks, for cyber potential benefits for specific companies in your portfolio?
6: We are accounting for that as a risk, but also an opportunity. I think when it comes to cyber security, when it comes to electronic digital payments, payment processors, we're excited about uh, security in the digital world and facilitating payments and other conveniences in the digital world. but when it comes to things like cryptocurrencies, uh, we think you need to ask yourself a more fundamental question. What does it take to make for a viable currency? And we're not sure crypto has that yet.
0: David Bianco, thank you so much My for pleasure. joining us today. When you leave, it's like the movie E.T. You're going to go out through the white tunnel. Be careful the guy with the keys on his uh, belt. Now, Matt Miller, Lisa Bramson, and Tom Keane, Mr. Miller in for John Farrow this morning with Amish Adalja of Johns Hopkins, who's been absolutely wonderful about perspective. Amish, what I hear in the zeitgeist is a legitimate fear of the variant, but in every conversation, the variant is over there. The variant is in Australia. The variant is in some selected part of Africa. Is the dreaded variant in America?
4: There are multiple different variants circulating in the United States, but what makes it different when there's a variant here versus in India or in Africa or Brazil or even even Japan is the fact that we've got so much of our high-risk population vaccinated that these cases of the variant don't necessarily translate into hospitals going into crisis. And that's why we prioritize the vaccine to those individuals who are most likely to be hospitalized. And when you look at the vaccines, even if variants might be problematic for symptomatic infection, meaning some people can get infected even if they've been fully vaccinated, like with the South African 1351 variant, the, when it comes to what matters, severe disease, hospitalization, mm-hmm. and death, the vaccines are extremely, are extremely good. And, and you have to remember, that's what the vaccines are meant to do. It's not meant to drive COVID to zero. That's not going to happen. What we're trying to do is remove the ability of COVID to cause a public health crisis, right. and the vaccines do that.
0: Another thing in the zeitgeist, Dr. Adeljian, I would suggest this is in your global wheelhouse. I think of Albert Coe at Yale University as well. Does good nutrition protect us from a worse outcome from COVID? the fact that we are well-nutritioned compared to other poor countries, does that matter? It does
4: matter in certain aspects. If people have nutrient deficiencies, if people are vitamin D deficient, they're more likely to get COVID. They're more likely to have a severe case of COVID-19. But I would argue, you know, even though in the United States, we might, be nutri- we might look good in terms of nutrition, we have a different part, a part of malnutrition. We have an obesity crisis in the United States. And I think the fact that most Americans are overweight really did Synergize with COVID-19 and, and get a lot of people sicker than they needed to be if we weren't so, such an overweight, obese country. So yes, I think it's important to have proper nutrition, but you can also kind of be overnutrition and, and have obesity on the other end, which can put your country into, into a problem too when it comes to respiratory infections like COVID.
1: Dr. Adaljo, we're at a place where a lot of people, particularly in the United States, are able to get vaccinated if they so choose. What's the latest science in terms of wearing a mask, not wearing a mask? What's appropriate for somebody who's been vaccinated and what risk they pose to others in terms of transmitting the virus.
4: So if you're a fully vaccinated person, you can basically go back to your pre-pandemic life. Breakthrough infections are extremely rare, meaning someone who's fully vaccinated. It's something that happens 0.000% of the time. And when it does happen, most of those cases are clinically insignificant, meaning they have no symptoms and they're not associated with transmissibility. So I think if you're fully vaccinated, go back to your life. You don't necessarily need to wear a mask. There are some caveats for those who are immunosuppressed. So I would talk to your physician if you are somebody who's had an organ transplant or is getting (laughs) chemotherapy about what precautions to take. So you, yeah. as a vaccinated person, aren't a threat to others. That's the important thing to remember. And others aren't a threat to you.
0: And Matt Miller, the global index that the World Health Organization looks at was very constructive last night. That would be 25,000-plus at Fenway Park as the Red Sox took out the Marlins.
5: Wow, we had uh, actually 27,000 at the MotoGP race in Catalonia over go. the weekend. So people I have no idea are what coming back... Said. Uh, I want to ask about the kids, um, Amish. I mean, I know you spend a lot of time at skate parks hanging out with Tony Hawk and Mark Gonzalez, etc. Are the kids getting vaccinated? Are are anti-vaxxers just, you know, um, 40, 50 year old people or, or, or is that prevalent among the kids as well?
4: Well, it depends upon where you look. The children have been getting vaccinated, but this is the early days of vaccination in the twelve to in the twelve to fifteen year group. So the early adopters are definitely uh, taking advantage of the fact that they can get vaccinated. We are seeing some parents who don't want their children to get vaccinated. The news about that that link that's being investigated, the very rare myocarditis or the inflammation of the heart, that's also uh, kind of making some parents vaccine hesitant i think it's less important to see vaccine hesitancy in the 12 to to 16 or 17 year old group than it is to see it in the adult group because we know that children in general are going to be less likely to be uh, severely, ho- severely sick with COVID-19, and are less likely to spread it. But yes, I do think there is some vaccine hesitancy. But what we're looking at now is the adult population. That's where we really want to see the mm-hmm. needle move, because those are the people who are going to be more likely to be hospitalized, especially as they get older, especially if they're overweight or have any other comorbidities. But I think we're still on a good trajectory to end the public health emergency in the United States because our high-risk population, 65 and above, is, almost, is about three-quarters fully vaccinated.
0: Dr. Adalja, you have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your continued support in helping us understand this pandemic. Dr. Adalja with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a Senior Scholar. there. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.